welcome to ESPN's The Far Post podcast. We've had our first round of A-League women's action. We're all very excited that we now have something to talk about. That's not the FAWSL. We do like talking about that, but we're really, really excited that we get to talk about our own homegrown competition. So we've had our first round. It is time to review it. So let's get into it. My name is Marissa Lordanik. I'm joined today by Angela Christian-Milk, Sam Lewis, and Anna Harrington. We will take you through all the action, all the bits, all the bobs, and everything in between. But we like to start things off here with some you love to see. It's things that we love to see happen on the pitch. So, Angela, would you like to kick us off with a you love to see it? Yes. Um, this you love to see is probably the least on brand we're going to get for me this A-League women's season. But you love to see Holly McNamara score for Melbourne City. You just, even for me, I have to admit, it was an absolutely outstanding goal Holly McNamara has made. So it was her first game. She played 90 minutes and she scored what could possibly be one of the top goals of the season. So this was for to get the 1-0 win over Canberra. It was in the second half. This deflection from a free came out to her and she, like, holds on to the ball. And it, I don't know, I'm not very good at the technical wordy things, but she holds on to the ball really well and then times it to dart around Lauren Kerr and then just, like, take this absolutely amazing shot. And it just soared over Keely Richards. She did not stand a chance up until that point. Actually, for the whole game, Keely Richards had an outstanding performance, in my opinion, but that goal could not be stopped. So, yeah, Kidlets, she's 18 years old, Kidlets scoring on debut. Yeah, absolutely love to see it. That's what the dub is all about. So, yeah. Absolutely, we love to see it. And I reckon you're right. That's very much, it, it should be winning goal of the week this week and it should definitely then be in contention for goal of the season once we have more season, obviously. Sam, are you love to see it? My you love to see it also relates to a goal scorer this week. It is Courtney Vine for Sydney FC. The great return, Vine time. Shout out Eric, friend of the pod, Eric. Uh, Courtney Vine is absolutely in ripping form already in her first game. She scored one of Sydney's three goals and assisted both of the others for Remy Sampson and for Princess Sabini. Last season, her first season for the Sky Blues, she was incredible. She was one of the most dangerous and most creative players across the entire league. And she maintained her spot in various categories, even despite missing the back end of Sydney's season because of an injury. So she's come back. She does have some sort of strapping and tape around her thigh, which might be an ongoing issue. But if Courtney Vine can really kick on from the sparks, the well, not even sparks, but just the, the, the burn that she showed last season, then I think she's going to be seriously like one of the best players uh, of the competition. So Courtney Vine kicking off her, her return to Sydney FC with a goal and two assists. You love to see it. We really do. She was absolutely phenomenal, obviously played a hand in all of Sydney's goals against the Jets. So expecting big things from her. Let's move on to Harrow. What did you love to see? I'm going to be very, very predictable with my you love to see it. Um, Once again, it's a goal scorer. It's Sam Kerr doing the thing in the Women's FA Cup final. Um, For a while there, it felt like she wasn't going to be able to score and the world was against her scoring in that game. (laughs) But uh, she broke through. She had a hand in the first goal for Fran Kirby. But then um, after having a couple of chances go awry, she just burst into life. First goal. Uh, where she just turns Lottie Wubamoy inside out and uh, finishes near post. 
great goal, but just the second goal, the third goal of the game is just an absolute delight where she gets the ball, fed the ball on the break, bursts away, spots Manuela Zinsberger off her line and just the most delightful of chips that you'll ever see. Just scoops it perfectly, nestles in the back of the net. Wembley erupts. Sam Kerr goes off and celebrate. All of her Chelsea teammates, starting with Penilla Hutter, just pile in on top of her. And, uh, of course, player of the match, talking point all over the world, front page, back page of newspapers, just another day in the life of Sam Kerr, I suppose. So um, Sam Kerr doing the thing on the big stage again. You love to see it. We do. It really doesn't get old. So we will stay with the FA Cup, have a little bit of a chat about it. Obviously, we know Chelsea were 3-0 winners over Arsenal. It was Kerr and Kirby, as it always bloody is, but it was some of their finest work. It was a really interesting match. I think we all kind of had a similar sort of view of it where we were all really excited based on you know, the the meeting between these two sides at the start of the FAWSL season. I think it was a pretty fair expectation that there was going to be goals, there was going to be spice, it was going to be really good. And it kind of fell a little bit flat. Sam, did you want to kind of elaborate on what we expected and what we got? Yeah, I mean, the, com- comparing it to the first time these two teams met at the start of the league, Arsenal came away 3-2 winners in that game and it was a pretty commanding performance. But this was the polar opposite of that. I think a lot of people maybe came into this thinking that it was going to be uh, tighter and more competitive perhaps than what it ended up being. But Chelsea were just unreal in every aspect. They were incredible. They were so dominant. They, I, th- I think it was the ultimate testament of how smart a manager Emma Hayes is that she had just one game against this Arsenal side and picked every single thing that they were going to be good at and neutralised it. Vivian Miedemar was basically a shadow for the entire game. Arsenal weren't able to get into the, the quick transitional passing game that we've become used to. Their fullbacks were neutralised. They neutralised Beth Mead, who is probably the most informed player for the Gunners at the moment. They didn't let Kim Little get on the ball to dictate tempo. They just, they did everything correctly. And I like, I sort of wish now that this had been the Chelsea side that faced Barcelona in the Women's Champions League final, because I feel like that would have been an absolutely much more cracking match than what that ended up being as well, which was a, a trouncing on the other end. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I wonder what happened to Arsenal. They, they didn't seem like themselves and maybe they didn't really anticipate number one, perhaps the the weight of the occasion, you know, over 40,000 fans, Wembley stadium, it had been a while since they'd been in a position like this competing for an FA cup title. Uh, you know, it was, and the symbolism of the moment as well, you know, a hundred years since the, the ban on women's football in England, there was a lot of attention on this game and maybe some of them weren't quite ready for that. And Jonas Edeval as well, head coach, his first FA Cup final, maybe he hadn't prepared perhaps in the ways that he would have liked to, or didn't really have the experience to. Um, so, yeah, and I think that all those kinds of facets were perhaps reflected in the ultimate performance, like Chelsea were just better and they were better prepared and they were able to answer any possible question Arsenal could have asked them before they asked. And I wonder how much Chelsea was stinging as well from losing to Arsenal at the start of the WSL season. Sometimes a loss is, it really is all you need. Like when we look at um, 
for a local example, the A-League women season last, you know, the last season where Sydney FC claimed the plate with that win over Melbourne victory and the victory turned the tables. A couple of years ago, it went the other way where victory beat Sydney FC, like I think the last round a week later in finals loss. Sometimes it just gives you that extra sting and it really makes you go back to the drawing board and look at everything that went wrong, every little tiny detail that you have to get right. And it seems like maybe that played a role surely played a role for Chelsea in terms of nailing it all down. I can't believe that with that overlapping of Catley and McCabe that Chelsea managed to neutralise that entirely because that's two world-class players on the left. And not only did they not really, you know, kick a ball in anger, but um, they got exposed at the end when Sam Kerr scored that that chip as well. It's, it's quite an extraordinary dismantling of another top club and it's like you say Sam it's very similar to the way Barcelona just took apart Chelsea in that um, Champions League final at Arsenal it's not like some you know lower WSL club making that final it's a team that's like right top of the WSL looks like a contender is refreshed under a new coach but just were made to look totally second rate and that's uh I guess fully a, a credit to Chelsea and pretty scary to be honest isn't it Michael Cox wrote a really interesting article for Athletic about the way that Emma Hayes set them up defensively. And I think it was a massive tactical win for Chelsea in terms of being able to identify how to neutralise. Yeah, as you said, Tim, those threats and those, those threats like McCabe and Catley who will come searing down the left wing and really expose a lot of sides. But having a basically, I want to say, Chihuahua, Cuthbert, there so she was playing it right back and I was really really impressed it was sort of like having a shifting defensive midfielder but um also providing that coverage there and yeah she I think she had a fantastic game and um notably Cox mentions in the article that Hayes did a back three for the the Barcelona yeah Champions League final but this is the back four is a relatively new thing that she's shifted to and it's obviously worked really well and also the Chelsea changed um, set up quite a lot during the game, which would obviously be very, it was confusing for me. So it would obviously, you would think it would be less confusing for Arsenal, but apparently not. And they weren't really able to remedy that and, and manage those changes. They just had a bit more defensive grunt in their midfield than Arsenal. I think Arsenal were perhaps thinking that they could just play their game and do their fun little midfield stuff. And they just, they couldn't, I think, def- yeah, Chelsea were really disciplined defensively as well. So, yeah, Sam? Yeah, um, back to my daughter, Erin Cuthbert, like Emma Hayes was absolutely glowing about her performance after the game. She said she's one of the most underrated players at Chelsea, but being able to show this flexibility and how quickly she has taken on this responsibility as a fullback over the last really just couple of games shows how smart a player she is and how disciplined a player she is. I think she's just extraordinary. But another player who I was really interested to see Hayes talk about in this way was Fran Kirby. We, We all know that Fran Kirby is an unbelievable player. But Hayes said that this was the best game that she had ever seen Kirby play in a Chelsea shirt, which is fascinating. Like, and I, I, I haven't seen enough, I think, of Chelsea to be able to comment on that. And Well, at least as, as, not as much as Emma Hayes has. But I just thought Kirby was at another level. Like Sam Kerr was incredible, but she really only came to life in the second half. Fran Kirby just was the knife of that, entire Chelsea side and 
everything seen, everything good revolves around what she does. Whether it, whether she actually touches the ball is a different question, but her movement off the ball, her decision-making, the way that she connects with other players around her, the way she brings other players into the, into the game as well. She, I, she's honestly just like one of the best, most informed players I think in the world at the moment. And it shocks me that she's not part of these bigger conversations we're having about awards, about BBC player of the year, about Ballon d'Ors, because Without Kirby, Sam Kerr cannot be what she is. And I think vice versa is becoming true as well. I don't think Fran Kirby can be as good as she is without Sam Kerr. That partnership has really, really blossomed this year. But I just think that she continues to be the the, the, the ticking heart, of the beating heart of this Chelsea team. And it's really, really lovely to see now that she is getting the sort of publicity from her own coach and from you know the rest of the world that I think she's deserved for a really long time. I think the thing with Kirby as well is you often see it with these best player lists and that sort of thing is the player has the massive season, but it's not till the next season that you start to see the plaudits and those sorts of things really roll in, especially internationally. It's um, there's, I think it, it reflects across all sports, to be honest, like unless you have a genuine like standout, no one can compete with your season. You're not probably going to win a lot of those things the first time around. So I think that, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Kirby rocket up from around 10th in those best player or Ballon d'Or style list to that top five because she is a super player. Um, not to go back over Sam Kerr, but I will um, because the thing that I think people forget as well, Emma, Emma Hayes certainly didn't forget, she'd just come off a plane like two days earlier. <laughs> like um, I spoke to Sam before these Matildas friendlies and I asked her about the FA Cup and she was basically like, going to have to deal with that jet lag and get on that sleeping pattern real quick because <laughs> I'm coming from Australia to London straight away to play this game. Angela just letting Mellon into the room as we speak. Um, and it was quite incredible what Hayes had to say about Kurt. She described her as a credit to Australia, which is uh, pretty impressive. Um, she said, as far as I'm concerned, she's the best striker in the world. She's courageous. She's full of confidence, a superb athlete, an amazing human. And she can do that after getting off a plane from Australia on Thursday. She didn't have a good night's sleep last night, but she just brushes things off. Champions do not make excuses or become victims. I'll look for anybody else to manage them. And she basically said that there was no way she was going to be on the losing team. And she sets the tone um, for Chelsea, which is quite incredible. And it just once again, speaks volumes of the, the environment they've got there at Chelsea. Kerr's thriving, Kirby's thriving, and they just look like a group that's going to an, to another level. Like, you'd have to think that they would have taken so much out of that Champions League loss, and it would have made them hungrier. It would have made them, as I said, with that loss to Arsenal in the first round, look at absolutely everything they did wrong or where they could be exploited or where they needed to improve. And look at how they could take things to another level. And it just it just feels like that that Kerr and Kirby partnership is going to step, already has, and it is going to keep stepping up another level. And it's um it's really, really exciting. And it's, yeah, I, it just makes you want to see the pointy end of the Champions League and see it come around faster, um, more so than anything, because sometimes it just feels like, I know it's so tight at the top of the of the WSL, but at times it feels like no team in England really can touch Chelsea when they're up and about. Yeah, it was, it was a fascinating final. I think you guys are right in the sense that Chelsea have taken a lot of stuff from previous losses, not only from the Arsenal game in the league, but from the Champions League final as well. And it is going to be interesting to see how they continue to grow and develop as you know, all their competitions and seasons get to kind of closer to the finish line. But 
let's move on from the FA Cup. We have five whole games of dub to talk about, so let's crack into them. We started things off with the debut of the Wellington Phoenix, and they drew nil-nil with the Western Sydney Wanderers down in Wollongong. I think, well, I know because we literally all said it in our preview, that we didn't expect a heap from the Knicks, and that was okay. But I feel like we got a lot more from them than we maybe gave them credit for. So who would like to just talk a little bit about the Knicks and their first game and kind of what we've learned about them, Sam? Consider us told. Damn. Like I I, I sort of, it was, it was so hard to make a prediction about a team you know nothing about, you know. So in our defence, we came into our preview pod with basically zero information. We knew about a couple of players. We knew about the history of the the New Zealand under-17s team and, and their involvement with Gemma Lewis, but we had no idea what this was going to look like, particularly not at, in the first round of the season. And I was, like, blown away by how Wellington performed in this game. The Wanderers are, I think, a different and trickier question because they, of all the clubs in the W League, considering the resources at their disposal, considering their facilities, considering the funding, considering the player pool available to them, are just so disappointing in so many ways. And I think they really underperformed in this game relative to what they're perhaps capable of by virtue of all of those things. But full credit to the Wellington Phoenix. I thought they were incredible. And it's an important note that I think eight of their starting 11 players were 18 years old. A lot of them had never played at this level before. They played at New Zealand Premier League level, which is semi-pro. A lot of them are part of the the youth system as well. So they are somewhat familiar with a a high-performance environment. But for a bunch of 18-year-olds living in another country, playing in their first fully professional women's season to come out and hold the Wanderers to nil-nil and to potentially have scored a couple of goals as well was just amazing. And it wasn't just the the result, but it was the way in which they performed. I remember chatting to Gemma Lewis uh, a couple of weeks before season kickoff and I asked them about their identity because how as a new club, as a new team, do you come up with this sort of stuff? How do you want to be seen? And she said that they have some really clear principles that they want to be living and playing by. And I think we saw exactly what that looked like in that performance against the Wanderers. They were aggressive. They were brave. They had a really high tempo. They they didn't shy away from potentially difficult challenges. One-on-ones were always competitive. They never gave up until basically the, their bodies were falling apart on them, the poor dears. I was so, so impressed. And if they are able to start adding goals to their repertoire and really start to, to, um, to fire some of those really good players that they've got up front, I think they're going to be a genuine force to be reckoned with. I'm so excited. Just extra impressive, Sam, as well, given how many of the more senior like football ferns players are already committed to other clubs. Like they didn't manage to snap up. Claudia Bunge is an obvious example of the sort of player you'd think they'd have loved to have had. I think we always expected Rebecca Stott to end up back at Melbourne City if she played, given her history there. But even like Hannah Wilkinson going to City, like there's some quality at Paige Satchel. Like there's plenty of quality Kiwi players who aren't there. So it's a it is a credit to themselves for how they got up for this game, considering the youth. I think probably the concern there is 
can you keep it up throughout the whole season? Because young players do get tired, young bodies, it can get tough. Um, and that's just going to be a matter of how they manage these players and and get them through. But, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be exciting to see how they go and maybe can they pinch some points off players when the Asian Cup rolls around and maybe some cl- other clubs are a little bit limited with their squads or uh, without a few players or just how the toll of the season stacks up. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's a shame they... Yeah, they would have obviously loved to get a result first up, but, I mean, it's something they can certainly build off. Two players for me that were really impressive. Um, Zoe McMeekin for the Knicks was unbelievably good and Sheridan Gallagher for the Wanderers really impressed in in her debut in the league. I think I'm not wrong in saying that. So lots to like, but, yeah, as you kind of said, Sam, I think we all expected a lot more from the Wanderers, so I reckon it will be... Very interesting to watch how they kind of respond in this next round. On that Friday night, we also had uh, City and Canberra playing at Viking Park. City came away with the three points. Angela, you were in Canberra. You made, made the long trip down to Tugrenal. Am I am I Canberraing right? But uh, <laughs> you've already said that the goal was your, you love to see it. But how did you see the kind of wider game and how both sides went? It's an interesting one. I, th- I thought it was a pretty exciting game to watch. Um, the first half I was quite impressed by, um, I guess, the cohesion from Canberra and the way that they were playing. They weren't just looking, as we mentioned in the preview, they've got, they've got the zoomies, but they were definitely looking to build up the play through the midfield and then sort of look for the right, I guess, ball to feed out to I think it was Chloe Middleton and Margot Rabin on their wings and I thought they both had a really good first half and there was some um Michelle Heyman wasn't um quite on but that, I think that's you know first game back that's to be expected but um yeah it was interesting so I watched it with my parents and my mum doesn't watch as much football as me and my dad but when she does make observations that often right and like towards the end of the first half she was like hmm City look fitter and I think that really <laughs> became apparent in the second half because I think City were a little bit chaotic I think they were struggling to unlock or sort of deal with that passing play from Canberra but then come the City like second half they regrouped and they had a lot more energy um, additionally I think in this Canberra side we do have a lot of experience but also there might not be just the depth in terms of being able to see out full games just yet from this side, especially with some of the younger players and balancing that out with um, the likes of like Heyman and Sykes who also came off in the second half. They did make a lot of changes. Interestingly as well, Grace Maher and centre-back. That Young Matilda special Grace Maher at centre-back. When they were oh, short of, cent- of centre-backs, they used to play Maher in there quite a bit. Um, yeah, it's interesting that she's played there because normally you associate her with being a bit more of an attacking player. But um, yeah, that's one. Of the, the other um, positional thing that's going to be interesting to monitor throughout the season, but from a Melbourne City sense, is um, Rebecca Stott playing as the six. Um, she has played like just pinch hit in there at times in the past, but we obviously know her as someone who can play anywhere, sort of across a back four or five. But clearly, City have gone well. We've got some, we've got some centre backs. We've got some defenders. We need someone who can really control and set the tone from there. And I imagine it's quite fun for Stoddy as well, who 
congratulations, Rebecca Stott, on making her return, um, her football return for the first time since going into remission. So that's really exciting. Um, but it'll be really um, interesting to see how she goes, especially in terms of she's looking to get back onto the international stage with the football firms. Um, and it, it seems like she's really enjoying her time back at City. She relished the, you know, getting back into the swing of things with pre-season there and has obviously based herself in it back in Melbourne for these past couple of years since she left Brighton. So yeah, I'm going to be really interested to see how that goes over the next over across the course of the season because um one thing that City really did miss last year was obviously Ivy Lewick was the cornerstone of so many of their successes in recent years just that stability in holding midfield so it'll be interesting to see how Stoddy goes there because we also know that she does love to go for a bit of a run and try and create as well so um it's going to be quite exciting and it, it frees up a couple of those younger midfielders that they've brought in or already have and you know the likes of Davidson and Polifina to go forward and to try and attack and to have the shackles off a little bit. Um, so I'm going to be intrigued to see how that structures up as the season goes. And I also think Wilkinson would probably have been surprised not to get a goal in that game. It felt like she had a couple of good chances, um, one where she was really close. Um, so it, she added a bit of a presence that I think City probably lacked last year. So it's going to be interesting to see how how or if they kick on and obviously playing victory this week will be a, a really good litmus test for them. Not just a couple of chances, Harris. She had a bunch. I'm kind of surprised, Angela, when you said that you thought Canberra played well. I thought I thought Canberra were rusty. I thought that they didn't look like they were sort of gelling in the way that we understand Canberra to gel. And maybe that is by virtue of some positional changes. You did see a Grace Meyer and Centimac and maybe that sort of threw them. You've got a Chloe Middleton who started in midfield, who has never played with Canberra before. And even if you just look at the stats, like Melbourne City had twice as many shots, twice as many shots on target. They had almost 60% of possession over the course of the game. They And their passing accuracy was higher than 10% than, than what Canberra's was. So I mean, uh, yeah, I, this, but this is this is what's great about football, right? Like we look at these kinds of things differently and we see different things in it. Um, I was impressed by City and maybe I was more impressed by City because I'm starting from a foundation of, oh, Melbourne City is not going to be very good because of, you know, it, the, how good their past has been. You know, and last season in particular, finishing seventh, they were pretty dodge. Coming into this season, you're like, yeah, yeah, but, you know, whatever. And whereas Canberra, I think you start from a different position when you assess their season. Maybe that's the reason I look at them a little bit more critically than what I do Melbourne City. Um, but yeah, no, I think, yeah, you're right, Harry, in that, in your observation, I think about midfield. Um, I think Rebecca Stott's going to be really important there. But also like Melbourne City do have some more natural midfielders who they've brought in this season, the likes of Darcy Malone, for example, uh, coming from New South Wales, Tori Chumuth. Even though she was there last season and she was used as a fullback, she's usually at, at, at MPL level, she's used as a midfielder. So you do have a couple of young players. Maybe they're just sort of acclimatising to that, um, to the club and to the team. Um, but yeah, it's going forward that I think is is going to be really interesting. I think Hannah Wilkinson is a really good pickup. She was looking deadly for them. And Keely Richards made a number of really important saves to keep Canberra in it. Uh, Holly McNamara obviously scored that screamer. And we know that Rihanna Policina has this incredible repertoire of skills that she probably could have used to her advantage a bit better when she was at Newcastle. But hopefully being in this number 10 role, she's able to really whip out some of that, uh, some of those techers and then show what she can do. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, I don't know how to feel about Canberra. They, I have faves at Canberra, but for some reason that performance just made me be like, did I, 
did I overestimate that what they're going to be this season? I wasn't too impressed by their international players, for example. Ali Harron and Chelsea Washington didn't really think they stood out in amongst the rest of the side. Um, Emma Ilioski, I thought, was great. But, yeah, like no one sort of really outside of Keely Richards, no one really sort of struck me in that game. But maybe, again, it's early doors, so they could get better. I have been begging the universe to see Carly Rosbarkin play, and I finally got to see her lose, but that's all right. <laughs> but that is a good get for Canberra in terms of their defensive stock, and um, hopefully if she's back in form, she'll be playing full 90s and we won't see Grace Ma. But I don't think Grace Ma did a bad job in, in a pinch in centre-back, but, yeah, it's she's got a lot to offer in that midfield more so, I think. I think it's an important move for Carly Rosbach as well. Um, after having a season in Norway ruined by that foot injury, um, we didn't see her feature in those Matildas games. Um, I understand she was fit, but just, you know, didn't do enough to, to earn a spot this time. So I think it's really important for her to have a big dub season, get some confidence up, get that confidence back in her body and her playing style. Um and just once again, really thrust her name forward again, because obviously she was so impressive um, as really a baby at the World Cup. And um, I think we thought we'd see more and more of her and that injury was really badly timed, obviously didn't make the Olympics or anything like that. So I think just a player that could use just a, a bit of confidence and finding a bit of form and showing what she can do again. And it seems to me a pretty astute move to to come back to the dub and, and get a, a little bit of a run of games in and then be able to to press their case um, for selection come the Asian Cup. Let's move along. The grand finalists from last season, I think, and I don't think this is controversial to say, really made some big statements in this first round of dub action. We had Sydney beating Newcastle 3-1 and then Victory beating Adelaide 5-1. We'll talk about both games starting with Sydney, but it was, it was real, exactly what you would expect from this Sydney side. It was that front trio terrorising the shit out of Newcastle, respectfully, um, and getting on the score sheet. So how kind of, I think we all kind of assume City and Victory would be up there, Sam. How, you know, confident in that kind of call are you now having seen at least one game's worth of evidence? Yeah, quite quite confident, I would say. Uh, yeah, no, I, I thought it was a really good performance from Sydney, particularly in the second half. I think the second half, they were much better. The first half was more about trying to figure out how to deal with problems that were answered by players that they don't have anymore. And I'm specifically referring to Teresa Polias because I think this that first half of this game against Newcastle, you saw so clearly how much Teresa Polias did when she was there not just in terms of being a defensive midfielder and covering all of that ground and switching the direction of play and making important decisions under pressure, but also in terms of her set pieces. Her corners, we spoke about this last season, were so consistent and they produced so many goals for Sydney FC. She was, I think, their most creative player in terms of assists because she just her, her set-piece delivery from corners was absolutely sensational. And her replacement this season seems to be Mackenzie Hawksby, who, bless her cotton socks, tried hard and had a, a whole bunch of corners to practice, but the vast majority of them did not go where I think she wanted them to go and Sydney therefore weren't able to benefit from it. But luckily, corners aren't the only way you can score goals. 
and the uh, the the triumvirate of Remy Sampson, Courtney Vine, and Princess Sabini were they came to the rescue once again. And once they once they found their sort of vibe, it, they just sailed it. You know, they just continued to ride the vibe right into the second half. Uh, shout out specifically to Courtney Vine for scoring in the 69th minute. Nice. And also for the extremely cute little flick on that shed that that was her assist for Remy Sampson's opening goal as well. It was an outside of the boot, little flick back towards goal, got the ball straight up and over Newcastle's defensive line. Oh God, love it. Uh, but Newcastle, I thought they, they were better in this game than what I was anticipating, particularly in the first half. I think they did pose some really good challenges to Sydney in the first half. I think their back line was very good. Um, their midfield had its moments as well in terms of being able to find really good passes in behind Sydney's slower and less experienced defenders these days. Uh, Jess Nash started at a sort of a right-sided centre-backy kind of role, which was, I think, very good. And she was very good there as well. Uh, shout out to Nat Tobin, who has been shunted back into the centre-back role as well. We've spoken about her before. She's extremely underrated. And I think this is going to be a big season for her, being the the new captain as well, taking that armband from Polias. Uh, and Newcastle got a goal for it as well. Lauren Allen, you know, came on as a sub and made an impact, scored in the 67th minute. You know, I don't think this Newcastle team are going to be as crap as maybe what I was anticipating, given uh, their their big turnover, particularly in midfield uh, in the off season. Uh, but Sydney were just classy, and they took their chances, and they they didn't give up, and that's something that I really love about this team. So again, similar to Wellington, if they can continue this, and hopefully we don't see another injury that takes Courtney Vine out of finals. Uh, hopefully that's going to be it's going to be another another trophy season for the Sky Blues. Hope uh, that's one that Newcastle can just stick up on the whiteboard come season's end. Samantha Lewis, not as crap as I thought. <laughs> a ringing <laughs> endorsement. <laughs> oh, you you really have a way with words, Samantha. Um, but just on Courtney Vine, uh, timing really is everything in football, and I really hope for her sake that this time this time around, um, she can hit form at the right time. She was fantastic last season for Sydney, and then cop that um, injury just at the worst possible time, like heading into finals, I'm sure would have been making a run at some more talent ID camps, trying to put her name up in lights for Matildas. And I have seen a couple of people query why she wasn't in recent squads. Well, I mean, she hasn't had a chance to play before, <laughs> before now. So I'm glad that she has straight away just gone, maybe I've got something to prove here. Maybe I can show what I can do. And she did that. She was fantastic. Like clear player of the match. Um, as you said, Sam, created goals, scored a goal herself. Um, I think she's very well liked. We saw that Sydney attacking trio um, really just flying last season. And I was actually shocked by the relative absence of Claire Wheeler mentions from you there, Sam. But they lost Polias, they lost Wheeler. So it's two massive, massive holes to cover, um, especially especially Polias. And that's no offence to Claire Wheeler, just Theresa Polias has been there forever. But that if Courtney Vine can keep playing like that, that will go a long way to solving some issues because if their attack is that powerful and potent and the player like that can just keep on performing, then it's going to be really exciting for, for Sydney. And as I said, hopefully for, for Courtney Vine, because I always think form should be rewarded. And if she can maintain this, she can thrust herself into the conversation. You know, it's always difficult for forwards to genuinely crack the Matildas. And given the the wealth of riches on offer, and I know people have mentioned your Briley Henrys and your Charlie Rules that have got a 
got a look in and that don't I don't know if that necessarily means we'll see them come the Asian Cup because I think they want to just get some players into the environment I think this is what a few people are maybe maybe forgetting that not everyone that's been involved in these friendlies is going to the Asian Cup in fact I'd say a lot of them probably aren't um but someone like Courtney Vine is just putting her name up in lights it's one game but if she can maintain it and especially do this in big games then she should be having her name underlined in this list of potential players Correct me if I'm wrong, but it was Taylor Ray, she was the six for that game. And it's looking like she'll probably be the person, the go-to, right, moving forward. Yeah. Okay. She did, she did well. I mean, she's been she's been the understudy for Teresa Polias for a several seasons now. Taylor Ray was sort of brought into the Sydney fold a couple of years ago. Um, but she's been plagued just by constant injuries, two ACLs. You know, like I think we all probably have some PTSD memories of when she went down and did her second and, and cried out to Amy Harrison, who had just come back for her first season after her ACL. Oh, my God. I still just like get emotional thinking about that moment. Uh, but, yeah, I thought Taylor Ray had a really good game. And she like when we talk about the number six question in terms of Australian football, Taylor Ray has been part of junior Matildas, young Matildas. She is very clearly a very natural number six. She's got very good balance. She's got good passing range, good vision. So I'd be curious to see whether she could have a a non-injury season, whether she can continue to improve and whether she can like really actually take the, take the baton from Teresa Polias and, and be the next midfield anchor of this Sydney side, because that position is often the thing that, as we were talking about with Ivy Lewick, wins you championships. So Sydney were like, 3-1, look out everyone else. And Victory said, oh boy, are you ready for this? I know Angela and Harrow, you were both at the games in very different capacities, but I'm keen on both your thoughts as to how this Victory side went in. What was, let's be real, it was a weird game. It was... it was one where the performance and the scoreline really kind of did not match in a weird kind of way. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Hopkins basically said as much. I was like, so Jeff, you know, pretty much a, close to a, a perfect start, you know, put five past Adelaide, easy as you like, um, bar the Kayla Morrison injury, which we'll touch on later. And he was like, yeah, he pretty much said, yeah, we were clinical. We, you know, on, on paper, it's a dream start, but we're under no illusions that it was a perfect performance. Like, we talked about it after the game. There's a lot to improve. They just won 5-1. They just smacked Adelaide United on the, like at least on the scoreboard. But um, I guess that shows um, how intent they are on going back to back that for them, it wasn't acceptable. And to be fair, Adelaide early on, especially did have some chances. Fiona Wirtz was super, super dangerous um, and hit the crossbar at one point and then victory took it down the other end for their fourth goal. She had a couple of chances that she sort of hit straight at Casey Dumont who made decent saves, but yeah, it all started by, unfortunately, poor Annalie Grove had that um, miss hit clearance and Leah Privatelli who hadn't scored since 2018 um, got the ball rolling with a tap in. And then I think it was three goals. It was three nil by the 23rd minute game almost over. Catherine Zimmerman hits that belter. While Victory were down to 10 because Kayla Morrison had had done her knee in the minutes previous and was off the field and it was 4-0 game over basically by half time. And Adrian Stenter said as much post-match that it was unacceptable. It just showed Adelaide how much the top teams can hurt you if you leave yourselves open to it. And I think that's fair enough. They basically played for pride after half time, tried to win the second half. Um, and it was basically one all in the second half. Wurtz did get that goal. It was, so it was weird, but it was one of those ones where 
I guess you say top teams win ugly. They're very good at winning ugly. And that's exactly probably what victory did. There were some very nice goals in there, but Adelaide, you know, Matilda McNamara's bundled Zimmerman over for a penalty. There's a couple of chances there from set pieces. There's one from a goalkeeper error. So it's kind of like anything that could go wrong in terms of team or individual errors did and victory just pounced. And, and that's what the best teams do. Um, I did think Zimmerman was fantastic though. Like she was super, like this is a player who um, a couple of seasons ago was just, you know, banging in goals at NPLW level, waiting for a chance and victory had all these top internationals coming in and, you know, your Christine Nance, for example, your Darian Jenkins, and she just couldn't get a look in. And she and Kayla Morrison obviously got a look in last year when COVID really restricted things. And she was fantastic last season off the back of no NPLW season to build form. And she just looks ready to go to another level. I thought there was no Melina Ayres, Lynn Williams, who they signed during the week, um, wasn't there either. But it was the, the Catherine Zimmerman show, as far as I'm concerned, with a, a couple of nice girls from Leah Privatelli, who was in the right place at the right time as well she yeah it was as I said like they didn't play at their best but they still won 5-1 so it's just a a standard statement from the reigning champions Angela yeah it was fun it was chaotic um as Marissa mentioned I was there (laughs) slightly uh less sober capacity than Harrow so uh yeah I don't know I I had a good time but I think what was interesting I think the cracks started to show a little bit with the in the second half in terms of defense which obviously you know Adelaide were able to get through and get that goal but um I was intrigued by in terms of um Jeff bringing off I think it was Nevin Andor and um and of course Kayla Morrison had already come off with the injury and so instinctively I'm a, I think it's great that they're building depth in that place and, and in that space, sorry. And it's great to see like Robers, who has been at Victory, I think three seasons now, and I don't think I've ever seen her play. Um, so great to see that. But um, I would have thought that maybe the subs would have been more leaning towards that attacking side of things, seeing as they were so comfortable and just to try out some other stuff there. But, you know, I, I expect there's a plan, Harrow. It sounds like yeah, they like- were injury injury enforced substitutes. Courtney Nevin oh. had hamstring tightness at half time, so they didn't want to risk her. And then Doran and Privatelli were both cramping up. Um, Jeff basically said post match, it's been very Jeff Hopkins. Sorry, said post match. That's been quite difficult, especially for the the Melbourne clubs in terms of preseason. They got one sort of good hit out against Melbourne City. Hopefully next year that changes because Western United will come in the league and you'd think border restrictions won't be so limited and maybe it'll be easier to get hit outs against MPLW clubs, but they really only got sort of one, I guess, hardcore competitive friendly match in before before the season. So we've seen it in the A-League men's competition as well. Just the Victorian clubs have had to deal with that, a lot of internal games. So that's why there were the substitutions. Um I would like to touch on something briefly, though. We we had a we had an Instagram post last week where our very own Sam Lewis was very very indignant when I suggested that victory were the team to beat. So what do we see from uh, our very own Sam? December five, four forty eight p.m. on Twitter, four nil. Adelaide only have themselves to blame for most of these goals, but this has been a stunning half from victory. Deadly in build up and in transition, goal threats everywhere. Definitely the club to beat this season. 
I oh, had so- them. I had them taking the premiership in my in my in my preview arrow. Like, <laughs> I <laughs> we have some fun, don't we? <laughs> I do when it comes to actual like brain worky. Of course, they're going to win one of the two trophies on offer. I'm just saying this to rile you specifically up, so that you come onto the pod next week with a receipt like this, so that you can embarrass me. <laughs> You know, they were sensational. They were they were fantastic. And the fact that Kyra Cooney Cross came after and said, Oh, I thought we were pretty rusty is terrifying, actually. Because mm. if that's rust, I I I I tremor to see what uh, a slick performance from the whole team is going to look like. But I like we have to talk about Kay- the loss of Kayla Morrison we, now because we do. That, it overshadows everything. Like you it can does. tell it's it soured the victory for the players. Like it's amazing that they actually carried on. Like they actually scored the fourth goal, I think I said, when she was off the pitch. Adelaide went down the other end, Wurtz hit the crossbar, victory rebounded, and uh Cooney Cross found um Zimmerman all the time victory were trying to get a substitution happening because Kayla Morrison got injured attempted to sort of go back on obviously didn't work and then is on on the bench um in tears since ACL confirmed Sam how much does this this is one of the at least top two or three center backs in the league if not the best that's you know normally fully fit yeah how big a hole is this like and how much does this change the title race because as I said, she's their captain. She's one of their best players. She's one of the best defenders in the league. And we saw how she marshaled that defence last year. Absolutely. The, her loss is huge. And we saw even in the game against Adelaide what happened when that defence started to fall apart. They were Adelaide started to really get in behind. I thought Fiona Wirtz was fantastic all game. And I'm really glad that she got a goal for her efforts because she was really the deadliest player going forward when Adelaide were able to transition. Um, and you saw that back four start to sort of crumble a little bit with Ab Morrison there to, to rally them. Um, and I think it was it was probably a testament to how important she is to the club that throughout the second half, when there were still all these questions about, oh, is she okay? Is she going to come on? How bad's the injury? That the camera regularly panned to her sitting in the crowd in tears, surrounded by her teammates, hugging Gabby Garten for like a, a solid couple of minutes. You know, like she she's really important for them, not just on the field, but off the field as well. That's why she's been handed the captain's armband this season. She's clearly a really important leader. She's someone who has really good vision. She's technically v- and very sound as well. Like it's going to be a big loss, but I think, you know, we were chatting uh, before the game about particularly the role of Courtney Nevin and whether if she is thinking about her own A-League W season in the context of the Matildas, because in that second friendly against the USA, Courtney Nevin was played as a centre-back. And if that's where Tony Gustafson sees her future, Nevin needs to be playing centre-back at club level. So you have to wonder whether maybe it was a coincidentally very important signing from Jeff Hopkins to bring Courtney Nevin to Melbourne Victory. She's not going to be playing probably as the replacement for Angie Beard now. She's going to be playing as the replacement for Kayla Morrison. And that may actually be the making of Courtney Nevin at, at, um, at centre-back, pairing with someone like Claudia Bunch, who is fantastic as well, and giving more opportunities to another young emerging fullback because God knows the Matildas are already overstocked when it comes to fullbacks. We don't really need another one. So... Yeah, I think still trying to find silver linings, I think, for for this particular issue is is important. I think that's spot on, Sam. I think, um, and hopefully Courtney Nevin has recovered well from that hamstring soreness. Um, As I said, they didn't want to take any risks um, with her. That's why Melina Reyes sat out the the game, actually. She had sore hammy and she's, I think, touch and go for this week. But, yeah, 
Nevin to left centre-back is the the logical move for me. Just get her in there, get her playing alongside Bunge. We saw how impressive she was um, the other night in Newcastle and it makes sense for her, Matilda's ambitions. It makes sense for victory. Um, Yeah, Robers was okay in centre-back when she came on, but I think that's the best move will be get Nevin in there. Maybe put a cheeky phone call into Angie Beard, who's back in Melbourne during the off-season, see if she's got any interest in getting the band back together. But um, on a serious note, that's the obvious answer, isn't it? You put you slot Courtney Nevin into centre-back and you you try and uh, fill the hole at, at full-back because... Yeah, you're not going to be able to replace Nevin. I mean, sorry, Morrison's leadership and her ability, and a moment for Kayla Morrison as well because she is. This looked like the season for her. Um, you know, could she win an NWSL contract off the back of this? Could she get her PR and push for a Matildas camp? That seems something that could well be in the pipeline, and it's just so so cruel. But I think she. Um, summed it up well in her Instagram post. She said um, it was along the lines of sometimes maybe I have to go through this low to really appreciate the highs of football and um, from all accounts, just a, a top quality character and should hopefully come back from this um, this stronger and next season we'll see her back in full flight. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a big challenge for victory. It's not necessarily an insurmountable one, but, geez, round one, it's pretty it's pretty brutal. So yeah, hopefully we, we see a solution found there and uh, yeah, it's, it's worked out pretty quickly because as you say, Sam, there's, you can't mess around with your defense too much. And it's something that they're clearly going to have to get right, especially when they come up against Sydney FC um, at the end of this sort of divided conference system situation. Cause that's going to be um, where push really comes to shove, I think. I don't know. I'm I'm feeling a lot more pessimistic about it, I think, than perhaps you too. I just in terms of like we can put Nevin back there, and that is yes, the obvious solution, but Nevin worked really well with Catley, and it's just yeah, having that experience on the field and having that mentorship, I think, will yeah, be the thing that's really lacking. Because Bunge is fantastic, but I think that she was really she was growing and learning a lot last season as well. And while Kayla Morrison was leading and also growing into her season I think that's why it feels yeah like you said Anna such a disappointing like just the timing is so awful yeah it's I and I don't yeah I think there were already question marks over the the depth of Victory's defense and this was like I've said this in the group chat but this is like the intrusive thought of like Kayla Morrison out first game of the season I I'm yeah struggling to see how they manage this holistically across the whole back line and manage to have a really sturdy, strong defence because that's the area that they really needed to improve on last season. And I really saw Morrison as the sort of solution to that as coming in with all that she had learnt there and being able to hit the ground running. But, yeah, we'll see. I'm Fingers crossed. And, yeah, our, our thoughts are obviously with Caleb Boots. ACLs, why, why knees do that? Don't love it. It bad. Um, the other thing is Amy Jackson is always a possibility to drop back into defence. We saw her do that at City at times. She's pretty important in the midfield for, for victory. Um, but there's, I think that might be another um, potentially a break glass option. They'd probably prefer to keep her in midfield. But, um, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting. It, it, I think it really just 
accentuates the need for now they've got Lynn Williams for this short-term loan period to just try and bank as many points as possible, which I think was always the plan. It's very much a luxury player, Lynn Williams. I think the difference between how the way Victory have got her versus the Wanderers is the Wanderers had her for that period where they almost became dependent on all their Americans and Denise O'Sullivan. And then it was not very far out from the finals where they lost them all and had to try and shuffle and figure things out. Whereas, yeah, I think the thing for victory with um, with Williams, who's a fantastic signing, albeit for this first month, five to six games of, of the season, but they've kind of just got to capitalise on that, try and just get as much out of her as possible. And then, um, yeah, try and have the defence figured out in the meantime for when push really comes to shove come the, come the second half of the season. A lot of intrigue and we're one round in, guys. Amazing. I like it. <laughs> I think we would have smooth sailing, to be honest. Let's just steamroll them. Sorry, I just wanted to tack on something really quickly to the victory chat. I think Jackson and Dumont become even more important now in terms of that backline and having the leadership, the experience, and just all of those things. Also, great to see Casey Dumont back doing really well, pulled out some really magnificent saves. I also said to a mate that victory now with with no Morrison, with, you know, Nevin hopefully okay to play next week and stuff, Victory have kind of become a, more a 4-3 proposition rather than a 4-0 proposition in terms of what what kind of results we can expect from them. Like pre-season we kind of had them pegged as strong defence, strong attack as long as nothing happens to the defence and now it's like, Maybe a little bit leakier, but still enough firepower to ultimately score more goals than the oppo, which is the whole point of football. Our final game of the round was Perth Glory getting the win over Brisbane Raw 2-1. They left it very late, but they finally have a win. It was their first win since February 2020, so they've been waiting a good while to to get that uh, three points. I think Brisbane will be disappointed that they kind of let that lead slip but how did we see that one unfolding how important is this win especially for Alex Aparkas his first win in this in this season that really is his you know what I mean I love games like this I love games where you look at the score and then you watch the game and you were like these were two different things actually it was it was just complete chaos from the 85th minute until full time just upside down world I do not understand how this happened Brisbane, I thought, were really good, particularly uh, sort of after the sort of 25th minute. Uh, Anna Margraf scored their only goal. Young winger returned back. Oh, no, doesn't return back, but has re-signed for a club, a uh, hometown club, which is great. Uh, she was really busy up front. I was really impressed with her. Um, and then after that, Brisbane sort of really started to, to dominate. They started to hold the ball more, connect passes more. They had almost three times as many shots as what Perth ended up having. They dominated possession, more shots on target, better pass accuracy, like all over the park. I thought they were really impressive. Um, Perth just didn't seem to sort of click. They just didn't, particularly in midfield. And perhaps that was by virtue of uh, Brisbane playing quite a good pressing game. And they really pressed out, particularly Perth's younger players in that midfield, two of whom are only teenagers. Um, And up front as well, I think Perth, 
you know, Alex is, Alex is probably going to be thanking his lucky stars that Gemma Crane was able to overcome her injury because she was sensational in this game. She was constant. She was fierce in her running. And she is really the reason why Perth won this game. She, it was her, uh, her dribbling that set up the, the goal for Susan Fonson Cam to slot home in the 88th minute. And it was her pressure on new Brisbane defender, Jesse Rashart that forced the uh, the own goal. I mean, there's been some weird recordings of this particular goal, but that that created the circumstances within which the uh, the second goal for Perth was scored. Uh, so yeah, it was it was a strange one. I think Brisbane are going to be pretty angry about the way that they let that whole game slip. Uh, but luckily, they're going to be playing Perth again next week, uh, so they have a, a shot at uh, redeeming themselves here. Um, yeah, I thought. I mean, both both sides had had really good players. Thought for Perth, I mean, Gemma Crane, obviously, Lisa Devanna started the game, um, sort of had flashes here and there. But I thought Brisbane's defence did did really well actually to sort of rally her and, and keep her quiet. Um, and on the Brisbane side of things, I was I was really impressed actually by their newest recruit, um, Shay Connors, who's come from Lions FC, I think, in the Queensland MPL. She was really really busy on that left wing, had a couple of shots um, uh, yeah, that needed to be saved as well. Like she she was looking in in really good nick. So yeah, these these two teams they're they're interesting this season. They're not the teams that we uh, are familiar with, or the teams that we were maybe thinking were going to exist this year. Um, but yeah, I'd be curious to see how they respond to each other next round and then throughout the rest of the season. Cause I think they've got different trajectories based on what we've seen so far. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Due to the kind of way the, the draw is structured, we get to see these two do battle again. So very interested to see how, like if things change, how do they change? What kind of happens? It's always a weird one when the teams kind of play each other in very quick succession, but That was round one. We'll look ahead quickly to round two. We start off the round with the Jets hosting the Phoenix. Brisbane and Perth obviously play again. We've got a couple of derbies. We've got the Sydney derby on Saturday night and the Melbourne derby on uh, Sunday afternoon. That will be the free-to-air game. So wrap your eyeballs around that one. And then we end things with Adelaide taking on Canberra. So lots to look forward to next round after what was, let's be real, a very enjoyable round one. Always nice to simply have the dub back. But let's move on to something else. It's a boot, but it's more of an opportunity to have a kind of wide-ranging discussion about things and stuff. So the league's announced a new wagering partner, NEDS. So that will be on both the, or it's connected to both the men's and the women's leagues. And everyone thought it was very interesting to to wake up and see that news that the league's now had a new wagering partner. I think we need to kind of then have a discussion about obviously sports gambling and its position within society, which is obviously very broad, very um, wide kind of topic of discussion, but also just within the context of the leagues and how many clubs have signed up to be part of uh sports gambling harm reduction kind of initiatives with respective state governments and stuff like that. So it was it was a really interesting thing to read and to kind of see the immediate, hang on a minute, what do you mean you're doing this and this at the same time? It was a real thing that made you go, hmm, 
it was it was just a real interesting thing and people kind of jumped on it immediately as well yeah you yeah you're completely right like this uh, the word wagering is doing a lot of work here isn't it like this is not this is a betting company neds is a betting company we've already seen them start to be involved in the broadcast coverage of the leagues uh daniel garb uh, does the sort of mid match odds or pre match odds or whatever the fuck it is um and now they have officially announced that they have a a formal partnership with this company and it comes as a pretty uh, blatant, uh, hypocritical decision given f- at least five of the clubs have partnerships with, as you mentioned, Marissa, uh, officers of responsible gambling in their various respective states. They have specific dis- made the specific decisions to reduce the visibility of gambling on, on match days, for example, like part of the Wanderers agreement with the Office of Responsible Gambling in New South Wales is that there is not going to be any gambling advertisement at home games. So I'd be really curious to see if there are some Ned's billboards that happen to pop up around the next Sydney Derby. Because my feeling is that the APL overrides the clubs when it comes to these kinds of decisions. Um, yeah, I mean, it does. It folds into a much larger conversation about the role of of gambling in sport, but particularly in football. I think football has a has a particularly terrible problem when it comes to this, and it's not just in Australia; it's elsewhere in the world. I remember there being a really good episode of Guardian Football Weekly that delved into how many. Asian betting companies were starting to be splashed across the jerseys of Premier League clubs and how unfathomably big the the, the sort of the, the financial market of Asian betting in particular is becoming when it comes to sport. Uh, there was a really good um, investigative piece in the ABC, uh, I think earlier this year, which looked at why so many betting companies are now watching lower tier Australian football competitions, your NPLs, uh, even reserve competitions, why you sometimes see that random dude at the back of the grandstand holding a mobile phone. Now you know what he's there for. He's collecting data, he's inputting scores because there are people overseas who are betting on these competitions. The amount of money that goes into this stuff is extraordinary. Um, and like everything else in sport and particularly in football, which is the most egregious example, money talks, money makes the decisions. And I'd be curious to know how much money was involved in this partnership between the APL and NEDS. I would be curious to know whether the governments were informed about this partnership, considering their own anti-gambling stance, um, and also whether this is going to cause any particular kinds of tensions between the APL and Football Australia, who are also very anti-gambling and have anti-gambling rules built into their membership policies for players. So it's just a, a, a I, I, I don't even know sort of how to summarise it in a, a real sort of witty whiplash way. It's just, it just seems like such a blatant reminder that you principles and commercial decisions are not aligned when it comes to Australian football at the moment. Um, it's, it's a, a sort of a, a reversal of the, the vibe that we were getting, I think from the APL when they unbundled, which is that yes, positive new direction. We're going to be doing all the right things. It's like, yeah, but you know, when you look overseas, you look at these leagues who you want to become, do we take everything from them? Do we take all of the lessons from them or all the decisions from them? Because 
a lot of those leagues have problems as well. And the fact that this has landed quite poorly with the community, I think, speaks volumes about uh, how you know how the APL is going to be navigating moments like this in future. Because optically, from our perspective, it it doesn't look good. Yeah, and I guess maybe this is worth mentioning. Full transparency. So, for example, ESPN they have a betting blog. Like betting and sport are pretty entangled and ubiquitous now. But I think the frustration, like you said, Tim, is that sort of hypocrisy of but then at the same time I wonder if like for example in the press release they talk about how they're like are going to endeavor to make sure that Australians are gambling responsibly but the very nature of the way that this particular kind of betting and gambling is set up is to like they win if people become addicted or engage in behaviors that are destructive and the frustration like on a like I guess an emotional knee-jerk level for me is like you now we can't escape it like there's less and less options for people who want to opt out of that space to be able to do so because there's this partnership where their NEDS is going to be on everything it was already across all the digital content before when you were looking at fixtures I think that I don't know if that was an accident and they accidentally put it up early or, or what it was but it's that sort of yeah, it, it is frustrating and also those initiatives that are about, so I think it's Love the Game in Victoria, um, Love the Game, Not the Odds, that sort of thing. It's very much about putting it back on the individual. We are talking about those pre-pod. It's about you take ownership over your habits and, and your behaviours around gambling. But, like, they're full, these organisations and everyone is fully aware that that is not necessarily, you don't, have complete agency because these particular kinds of systems have been set up to exploit particular parts of our behaviour. Because, you know, gambling's been around. I mentioned this. With, I was talking about this with my parents. My mom's like, gambling's, you know, people have always gambled. And that's very true. It's like something that you can't prevent. But it's just the scale and the corporatization of it and how exploitative that is and who that exploits for the profit of whom that is the stuff that needs to be taken into consideration. I'm just, yeah, I'm quite disappointed with this decision, I think. Um, and a lot of people have noted, you know, got to make money somehow, but maybe blue sky thinking for me, but it, it is frustrating that we've just normalised it and accepted it and that it's just what we do now. And it's like, no, we don't, I don't, I don't think that's good enough. It is really interesting because I think we're we're all smart enough to know it all comes back to money. That's everything. That's that's the whole crux of this issue. <laughs> I did like though, Sam, you saying you know maybe the APL has kind of precedence over the clubs that do have these partnerships with state government initiatives and whatever. But as uh, Vince Regari, Sydney Morning Herald journo pointed out, the APL and the clubs are one and the same. So it's like exactly. Yeah, it's it's something that really needs to be said and publicised because I didn't make the connection in my brain until Vince said it. But five of these clubs are connected to these initiatives, but these clubs also make up the APL who made this decision to get this money from Neds. And I think it is, unfortunately, it is really important to also note I swear to God, a sports management subject back in my uni day said something along the lines of 
betting money is now the second biggest kind of source of revenue for clubs and leagues behind TV money. TV money is always this huge behemoth that funds a lot of things, but right up behind it is your betting money. And it wouldn't surprise me if they were maybe now on par or the gap between them had been bridged or closed in some capacity because it is so pervasive on your front of shirts, on the advertising hoardings, on, you know, on your social media, on the actual broadcast. So it's really interesting to look at it from the perspective of we know we need money. Australian football has literally always needed money. So we know that they are getting money via this partnership, but it's more about the societal responsibility of the clubs and the leagues as to how they get that money and what that money then forces them to do. So I think it's going to be really, really interesting to see if there's more pushback, if clubs just decide to be kind of really hypocritical and have, you know, for example, the Victorian clubs down here run a love the game, not the odds ad right after a betting update from Ned's. Like, is is that what we're going to do now? Are we really going to like just pretend that it's all, it's all good, you know, like Adelaide United, they, um, they said in their press release with their kind of um, partnership with the SA government uh, initiative that they had turned down betting sponsorships specifically. So is it going to be a thing of, um, you know, all the Adelaide players take part in this ad that will run on the big screens at uh, at Coopers and then it's again followed up with, mm, look at this exotic market, like let's let's see what kind of money we can do. It's, yeah, it's it's something that, is becoming a bigger issue in sport and it's something that clubs and leagues and players in particular are becoming more vocal about as well. I know in uh, Victoria, in a lot of footy circles as well, there's been a big pushback and a lot more um, conversation about clubs and their connection to pokies. A lot of clubs have taken a lot of pride in actually cutting off their reliance on pokies. So it's going to be really interesting if football's almost going backwards and, and chasing that coin in spite of everything we know and the kind of direction society seems to be going into regarding sports betting, but we're obviously not privy to the decision-making processes that have gone into this. So it is that sort of thing that APL are presenting this front. It's, you know, the clubs are managing this stuff, but yeah, I'm I'm interested to know if there was any, t- like those tensions, how they're playing out behind the scenes at a club like Adelaide with their board and their management. They would so obviously be across this and know that it looks bad. This won't be the last time we talk about it and it's going to be really interesting to see what actually does happen, particularly uh, in relation to those clubs that have these these partnerships. But let's do a bit of a 180. Let's do some more positive chat. Let's do some how goods. Taro, please kick us off with a how good. Yeah, my how good relates to Sam Kerr. Um, and it's just a funny one because um, she got interviewed, I think it was by the, the BBC after winning the FA Cup. And she basically was talking about how she would have loved to have had her family there. They're obviously in Perth. Unlike if they were from Melbourne or Sydney, they couldn't fly over there and and go and watch because they would have had to come back and do two weeks hotel quarantine and all that jazz. So I imagine that's been quite difficult for her. But then she's just rounded out the interview by going, my girlfriend's here, that's why I put on a show. Let's go. (laughs) 
And she's obviously talking about Christine U.S. and the U.S. International, her partner being in the stands. But it was just the amazing, like, just turn of mood from, you know, it's such a shame I can't have my family here because that's why I love to have them here, to girlfriends here, that's why I put on a show. Let's go, let's go. And just ready to get straight back into the celebration. I just loved it because it was just so off the cuff and so fun and just just accurate, like just just enjoying the moment. Um, she's able to have her partner in the stands. Uh, she's loving life. She's on, at the top of her game right now and it's all going well for her. So Samka just living her best life post FA Cup final. How good? So good. She really does have the range, doesn't she? Sam, hit us with a how good. Yeah, my how good uh, relates to the FA Cup final, um, something that I don't think Aussie viewers were able to see due to the broadcast was what happened uh, pre-game and at halftime on the field. Uh, the FA had organised for a number of the pioneers of the Women's FA Cup who played in the very first one in 1971 to be paraded out on the field. They were in, invited uh, as special guests. They were had their names announced and their achievements announced in Wembley Stadium, and they got to be there surrounded by almost 50,000 people cheering on Chelsea and Arsenal. I just thought that was a really lovely moment. And it was a, you know, I, I wrote about this in my sort of my piece for ABC as well. It was an interesting uh, sort of triangulation of the 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 history and, and the future of women's football, I think. The fact that they deliberately staged it on the 100th anniversary of the of the ban in England from the 5th of December 1921. The fact that it was the 50th anniversary of the Women's FA Cup as well. Um, and, you know, bringing all of those threads together into this one moment, I thought was really special and really powerful. There were, of course, a couple of um, sort of negative threads that, that spun off that, including... You know, most importantly, perhaps the disparities in FA Cup prize money. Uh, but I think overall it was a really amazing occasion and a really amazing celebration of just how quickly women's football has got to the point that it has, uh, despite all of the structures that have been placed in its way. Um, so, yeah, just a FA Cup final, women being awesome. How good? I think also it's really just I've been thinking a lot about, you know, you know, the great turnout at Wembley and that sort of thing. And, you know, it's very heartening to think about how women's football has succeeded despite the odds. But I think it's also interesting to note that women's football was stifled because it was succeeding like that. And like, for example, the Dick Kerr ladies getting 50,000 people turn out. That was a thing that was happening, you know, 100 years ago or, you know, 100 years ago, minus a few, before they put a stop to all that. Um, but so, yeah, I just think that it's, like, it's bittersweet, you know, thinking about how far we've come, but um, also how far we could have come as well. Anyway, that's just my... Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that's exactly what I wrote about from, for ABC as well. Like, 100 years ago, we had these kinds of crowds. A hundred years ago, we had this roar. A hundred years ago, we had the interest. We had the support for women playing football. But there was a group of decision makers who were threatened 
by what men. was happening. They in were that men. Space. Please say men. They were I, I white not, male decision makers. I will not stand for decision makers. It was men. <laughs> well, a, group of, a group of white male decision makers, also something else that has not changed in the past hundred years when it comes to football, who decided to to ban women from playing on association pitches, which effectively banned them from playing the sport altogether. They were relegated to public parks and to any patches of dirt that they could find, but they couldn't play on official fields. And so the result was that women disappeared from the from the the books basically you had clubs that folded because they couldn't afford to field teams you had women footballers having to keep up their skills in their own backyards and playing pickup games with each other because they couldn't organize competitions together and that ban lasted for 50 years and this is something that when we talk about sponsorship when we talk about audiences when we talk about broadcasting people forget that women's football starts with a 50-year handicap we have to catch up by 50 years in that point men's football turned from amateur to professional it became a full-time job for people it started to embed itself in the cultures and the communities and the histories of all of these amazing football nations that we now compare ourselves to, the nations that women's football is wanting to crack into. It had that clear air because there were men who decided to make it so. And the FA Cup final, I think, was a real reminder of that and also a reminder of the fact that women's football is founded on perseverance. It's founded on the efforts and the passion of women who did not give up even when everyone else was telling them to. I think that's really important, really powerful to remember as well. That's every time you meet someone who's just like, oh, but they don't bring in enough revenue or some bullshit like that. It's like, I don't know how else to explain to you that, you know, that, they paused the women's video and never pressed pause on the men's and you're wondering why they're not at the same part of the movie. Like, I just, I don't, I don't understand that. And that's the other thing. Sorry. Someone's watching She's a Man, someone's watching Goal. They're not on the same. Sorry, this is a lockdown story. Sorry, Marissa, you were on a tangent. I interrupted. No, but but it is. And I'm just like, and at no point have the men ever, ever had to deal with that level of pushback you know what I mean never once and even in you know somewhere here like Australia where football wasn't treated very well they were still like the men were still allowed to play maybe they weren't supported but they were still allowed to play and it just it always blows my mind that people either don't know the history or just choose to ignore it and it blows my tiny mind and I, I wrote something similar for, for Optus and basically it was just like this needs to be half history lesson, half actual talking about the match because it's too important not to not to mention and not to discuss and not to kind of repeat over and over again so people know kind of where we've come from and why things are the way they are now. But anyway, huge how good, massive how good, the how goodest of all how goods. Angela, a how good please? Oh, follow that. Oh, my how good, okay. Don't expect the same sort of vibe from this how good. My how good is Emma Hayes saying after Chelsea won the FA Cup final 
Where's the exact quote? No, she said, she said, we just purred from start to finish and I'm fairly certain she rolled her R when she said purr as well and I'm not going to try and repeat it. You just need to go find the video. It's excellent. But what makes this whole thing even funnier is we were talking about this pre-pod and we realised that it's her having a cheeky little jab at Jonas Ideval because he said an oppressor before the game, someone must have asked him about his superstitions because, you know, sports folk, they, we, they, we, we have our superstitions. I'm thinking Olympico end. Anyway, we have our superstitions. And he says, I do have some superstitions and I think that's healthy because it makes you feel like you have control over the uncontrollable. I don't let any black cats cross my way ever. And then he makes a note about how if Emma Hayes sees this, she will probably buy a thousand black cats with the money Chelsea have and send them all over our training pitch. That was probably a really bad giveaway by me. I'm going to be invaded by black cats. So those two things in conversation with each other, very funny Um, and also very on brand for me who has had a cat, not a black cat, but an idiot cat interrupting me this entire pod. How good. I will say, though, the Olympico end is not a superstition. It's fact. It's happened twice. Just saying. The stats. Viva la Olympico end. Forever and always. Anyway, we're not going to get into Olympico chat now. There's so many more pods for me to go full Nuffcraft on (laughs) the Olympicos. But anyway, thank you so much for tuning in today. Remember, you can find us on ESPN.com.au and the ESPN app. We're on Spotify, Apple and Google, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review wherever you do listen. If you want to talk to us about things and stuff, we're at the Far Post pod on all social media. But until next week, sweeters.